Welcome to The Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello and welcome to The Banker Midweek. Your editors this week are myself, Liz Lumley, and our brand new investment banking editor, Michael Climes. Hello, Michael. Hello. Very good. You're joining us because we're going to talk about the investment banking awards, but that's a bit later. We'll get to that. We'll get to that soon. And we also have a special guest today, Alessandro Hatami. Hello, Alessandro. Hello, how are you? Good to see you both. <laughs> you, uh, you, well, listen to us both. This is this is podcast world. <laughs> no, <laughs> no need for lippy or combing your hair. Um, it makes it much more relaxed. But uh, thank you so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, so as our listeners know, The Banker Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories live on the Banker site and newsy bits that will influence future stories. So I'm going to start off with our cover story for October, which was written by our uh, European editor, Anita Hauser. And this is Why Are Banks Still Financing Fossil Fuels? So in it, they talk about how banks have taken steps to transition to net zero. But according to uh, Banking on Climate Chaos, a, a, a report from that group, 60 banks funneled $150 billion in 2022 into the top 100 companies expanding fossil fuels, um, and it named J.P. Morgan Chase as the worst bank overall, poor J.P. Morgan, since the Paris Agreement for financing a total of $434 billion of fossil fuels since 2016 and $39 billion in 2022 alone. Now, it's interesting. I mean, this is um, climate change, uh, ESG concerns, environmental financing, fossil fuels is now uh, huge news over the past few years. And there's been a lot of um, efforts by a lot of banks um, to uh, to comply with, with new regulations and also to try to, as I said, uh, take steps to transition to net zero. But I think this, this article really kind of uh, talks a bit about how really complicated this story is. And I, when I always try to stop myself because I, I'm taking the journalist hat on to to not be a climate change denier, but kind of not um, to recognize that this is a complicated issue to try and solve, especially on the bank side. And, um, you know, we, you, we can't just stop uh, investing and financing fossil fuels tomorrow because that would have damaging consequences on global economy. Um, but um, what do you, what 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 is your view on on this? Uh, why banks are still financing fossil fuel expansion? Why can't they just stop tomorrow, Alessandro? Well, I, I think you you mentioned it uh, very eloquently yourself. I mean, they 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 have two dimensions, right? One is that you you put it in very altruistically that they want to invest. Um, they they're worried about the global economy. Uh, maybe what they're really worried about is their own returns. Mm-hmm. And um, in, in a world where suddenly fossil fuels have become um, much more valuable, let's put it this way, recently with all the all the stuff that is happening in Ukraine and Russia, um, so the behavior of the Saudis with their oil supply and so on and so forth. So the, suddenly we're seeing that there's an opportunity for for actually being more profitable, let's say, by investing in those sectors. Mm-hmm. So there's a dimension of that. Secondly, I think they. They have to rely on metrics and indicators that say that this is a good investment or not. And I think those are lacking. So if you look yeah, at some of the metrics that we, we put in place. Yeah. yeah. And I think so if I say I invest in company X because it has this rating, et cetera, et cetera, and it's it's environmentally sound and it turns out not to be, is it is it, you know, my intentions were good. I was just misled, if you want. Mm. 
No, um, yeah, I agree with you completely. Go on. Yeah, so I, I think there, there's a combination of intent uh, of actually focusing on a sector that growth grows. Um, there's uh, worry about creating the collapse of the global economy, et cetera, et cetera, if they don't invest in, 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 uh, in fossil fuels. That's possibly a little bit weaker. Um, but also the fact that they don't have really have the metrics to be truly, truly solidly um, environmentally focused. They, mm-hmm. The metrics that you have to evaluate that are not that good. I know, and I, I agree. I think also, you know, kind of that old um, adage, you know, to, to follow the money. You, the, the, it needs banks really don't take a moral judgment about whether they're financing a, a wind turbines or <laughs> fossil yeah. fuel. You know, they need to make that the the better economic decision. Yeah, and I think you're hitting on, on something really interesting. So there's a lot of debate these days about capitalism 2.0, mm. where it's not just about return. It's also about your stakeholders, your shareholders, your, your customers, your public opinion, et cetera. And I think banks have a little bit of a hard time in appreciating that in a way, possibly driven, accelerated by COVID and everything. We are thinking about our, about the world and about how our money operates in a different way that we did a few years ago. Mm. So pure, especially when you speak to young people, pure capitalism, uh, is no longer cool. Um, there has to be a broader sense of of, of purpose, and I think uh, maybe the banks are not really getting that. Yeah, pure capitalism, neoliberal capitalism. There's always we have to do a, a chart to explain. I like capitalism 2.0. We'll look into that. We'll look that soon. <laughs> Michael, what do you, what do you think on your your views on this? It's quite tough for um, businesses generally to sort of adapt to. Uh, uh, the climate issues and net zero. Um, I think that sometimes, I mean, I'm not an expert on it, but I think sometimes it, I think some of the targets perhaps are a little bit um, unrealistic, <laughs> uh, so so to speak, um, uh, and and so forth. I mean, I don't don't think that I'll be driving an electric car um, completely, maybe within. Well, you're going to have to in a few years. After a few years, yeah. yeah. But they, but they put <laughs> not, it not in the UK. Yeah. Not, not in the UK, UK. but okay. they put it, but they put it back a, 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 oh, did they? Okay. a little bit. Last with it, the news, twenty thirty to twenty thirty five. I think. I think um, uh, Rishi Sunak has has uh, can um, uh, confirm that. So, so I do agree that we all need to get on get on board. Mm. But, but the exact means to the end. Yeah. Um, is... no, but our targets haven't changed as a country. Our targets haven't changed. Um, mm. We're just uh, allowing people to have diesel cars a bit longer, mm. which is interesting. So you don't change the goalposts, but you change the the rules and see what happens. It's quite. It's going to be how, how interesting to see how we reach how, actually those targets that are still, mm. you know, quite quite um, important to the UK economy. So as a as a bit of a companion, there's also a, a story on our website today called How Can Development Banks Work on Their ESG Credentials by one of our reporters, Davide Moniger. And so it reminds the readers development banks are some of the most important actors in the global economy because the funds they mobilize can have a direct and indirect impact on people around the world, but their investment activities are raising questions about the effectiveness of tackling systemic problems, including poverty, inequality, and climate change. It's a... Whenever there's a, a social or cultural problem, banks are right right in the middle of it. But I'm going to move on a bit because I wanted to talk a bit about uh, Flutter Wave. So John Everington, our Africa and Middle East editor, had an interview with their CEO. Um, there's a story on the site today called Flutter Wave Makes Final Preparations Ahead of IPO Listing. So uh, for those who don't know, uh, Flutter Wave, founded in 2016, uh, is a Nigerian fintech unicorn. It's one of the one of the stars of the African fintech scene, and I think it's an alumni of Y Combinator as well. Um, but they had some controversy when they first announced that they were going to go 
uh, public uh, because they had, uh, see, there were claims of a toxic workplace culture. Oh, gotta love those startups. And improprieties involving share options, all of which were denied by management. The company also found itself in hot water in Kenya with the country's assets recovery agency freezing several millions of dollars worth of its assets as part of two cases of suspected money laundering and fraud. Um, but in August, the company said that it was moving forward with plans for the initial public offering when it first was publicly in, uh, indicated that it would do so last year. So that's a very interesting uh, interview that John does with their CEO and co-founder. So it's interesting, and we're going to get into it a little bit with some other stories uh, later on in the podcast. And my comment on this is not necessarily about specifically Flutterwave, but about I think there are there are there are some countries outside of the Silicon Valley bubble that are just so desperate to have a star, to have a unicorn. We're going to talk about one in the UK, my favorite company later on. Um, that uh, any you know any problems tend to be kind of smoothed over and ignored, and if you bring them up, you are you are an enemy of progress and innovation. Um, so. I are we are we on the altar of wanting a unicorn kind of letting some companies get away with maybe supposed alleged t toxic work workplace culture and compliance issues and is this a or or do you guys just want to talk about Flutterwave anyway what do you think Alessandro as I as I ramble along well I I, I completely utterly disagree with you mm. uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I should have been more subtle. Um, <laughs> We I love agree that. We love that. Bring it on. <laughs> I, I use the English thing. The English methodology. Mm. I agree in part. Mm. Um, look, they are a startup. They're addressing a market that has desperate needs for the services they provide. They enable custom in, in, small businesses to get to market. They enable payments. Uh, they are growing, so they they're not that young, that that old. So they have been around for a very long time. Um, do you know any banks possibly that haven't had any problems with regulators? Mm. Do you know any true, true. any banks that have not? had some issues with culture, um, you know, should, should we just <laughs> just go back and see? I mean, they, they are having all the, exactly all the problems that we have in, in, in the West. They're having them in between Nigeria and the Silicon Valley where they're based. Mm -hmm. They've created a proposition that is incredibly uh, useful for the economy of Nigeria. Nigeria, I used to work there many, many moons ago. And you see that there's, a, there's an elite of people who have access to all the bank bank services and so on. And the vast, vast majority of people don't. So there's a there's a black economy, there's a cash, is winter driven economy, and what these guys have done, not similar for what Mpesa has done in large part on the other side of Africa, is enabling custom enabling individuals and small businesses and, and consumers to be able to have access to services that the richer uh, richer countrymen have uh, countrywomen have too. So I'm I'm very optimistic about what they've done. Um, will will are they perfect? I have no idea. Do they would are they do they have issues with their culture, etc.? Most likely, most companies have had them or do have them. I don't think it's fair for us to to say just because they come from a country that hasn't had unicorns before, they are they're not really unicorns. They're not really doing their job. I think, in fact, I would actually. Oh, I think, think it is a unicorn. I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, unicorn in a, in a positive sense, mm -hmm. a deserving unicorn. Let's say mm -hmm. that way. And I, and I think it's 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 quite impressive uh, what what they've been up to. Um, yes, have they had problems? Absolutely. Um, the Kenyan government has realized, has said that some of the wrongdoings did not happen. Some did, etc. But you know, 
we can go through any any paper in the last month and we'll see a few banks that have been fined for errors and mistakes, et cetera. Um, one thing also to learn is that as they are starting up, they're creating a company that and they're hiring new people, it's really hard to make sure that you dotted all the I's across all the T's. Now, what's important is um, you need to own up to it and fix it. And I think that that's what they're doing. Mm. Yep. No, no, I agree. I mean, for, for, for anyone who's been living under a rock, I mean, Africa is such a, a huge a burgeoning fintech space and especially Nigeria is a, is, a, is a country really to watch. Every African south of the Sahara is uh, one of every eight is Nigerian. Wow. You know, so so it's 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 a it's a, really, it's a gigantic economy. Uh, it's uh, them in South Africa are the biggest economies in, in sub-Saharan Africa. They they are and amazingly diverse. They have natural resources. They have a very very deep culture. Very good food, by the way. Mm. Um, and uh, and uh, you know, so it, it's interesting to see how they're moving, and they are. They are becoming the Silicon Valley of Africa, much more than South Africa. South Africa is very self-focused. Nigeria is more, much more open, I think. Uh, so interesting. Well, interesting. So we, we shall watch that IPO coming soon. And uh, you'll probably be watching that along with John for the public companies. But I wanted to move on to talk a bit about uh, the Investment Banking Awards, which are listed on the site. You can see um, everyone who's won this year. Um, so despite the strong headwinds and continuing uncertainty, investment banks were able to execute thousands of deals, many of which break new ground and show the way ahead for the industry. So although, Michael, you have just joined us, but uh, this this will be your baby next year. Indeed. Indeed. So why don't, you, why don't you talk us through some of the winners? City have done uh, very well uh, this year. I think if I've counted them correctly, they've uh, won about five of the awards. Um, they won uh, Investment Bank of uh, the Year, um, and I think, uh, which I guess is perhaps the most prestigious. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the big one. The big, big one. one. The big one. So they did, did, did the big one. Um, I think it's interesting that, that they've done so well in the context of uh, Jane Frazier mm-hmm. um, and sort of her, uh, sort of, uh, I guess, her sort of new, new, new leadership and, and how that's an unfolding and her vision for the bank, which mm-hmm. I think still remains to be uh, seen. Um, the most interesting thing for me that I picked out of uh, 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 the uh, entry in the magazine was that uh, City apparently is the remains the only U.S. bank operating um, on the ground uh, in Ukraine, despite mm. the ongoing conflict, which um, really stuck out um, for me. Mm. Um, I just I follow that that situation there quite quite closely. Um, and then as far as uh, uh, other bit. Big players that have done well. HSBC um, did very well and picked up several awards. Um, they were the Investment Bank of the Year for Sustainability, so they're very, very um, active there um, in underwriting sort of a lot of the uh, activity, uh, more involved in the uh, activity. Um, and they, I think, will keep pushing there uh, very hard for the foreseeable future, as that seems to be a major part of their their play. Um, and in terms of deals, uh, so Investment Bank of the Earth M&A was uh, at Rothschild and Co. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can have a notice that they beat um, Goldman. In fact, I don't see Goldman anywhere on the list. Yes, on the full list. That's that's really really <laughs> not good. having a good year, Goldman. Not having a good year. Um, so we'll see if Goldman will get back in next year. I see you mentioned City on the ground in the Ukraine because they also won Investment Bank of the Year for Central and Eastern Europe. Yes, yeah, yeah yes. Um, so they're obviously very, very active there. Um, and Rothschild also uh, seemed to be um, 
active um, in that space too because they also won the investment bank of the year for restructuring and they helped um, restructure some of Ukraine's uh, debt, I think, when they lost access to the international uh, markets. So they're involved in several deal, deal, deals there. Closer to home, the investment bank of the year for Western Europe is Barclays. I thought that was interesting. Anyway, yeah. So <laughs> I have another podcast on that one. So, um, so those are the kind of the the um, winners that I really uh, picked out and that mm. stood out to me. So yeah, so we uh, we congratulate all of the winners for this year and uh, thank you to all our judges as well and look forward to Michael's list for 2024. Indeed, <laughs> coming soon. So now we are unfortunately that time of the podcast where we leave the banker site. No boo hiss, but we're not going that far. We're going to the FT. Um, so one of my favorite things they had a CEO profile and this is uh, with plaids played plaid. I've heard it pronounced tw- uh, two ways. Zach Parrott, um, uh, and it's titled "Talk to Every." one you can. So he talks a bit about um, the failed sale to Visa that happened a few years ago that made a lot of headlines. Um, But then uh, in April 2021, the company closed a round of funding that valued it at $13.4 billion, more than double the price Visa had planned to pay. Looking back, Parrott describes 18 months in which he made the decision to sell the company he had spent almost 10 years building, then backtracked while navigating the onset of the pandemic as by far the hardest period of my life. I don't know anyone that had a good 20, 21, 22, <laughs> but it's interesting. I know it's always good to, to read these CEO profiles, but the thing that struck me was the day in the life. And I tell you, I was pleasantly surprised that um, yeah, he didn't wake up at four o'clock in the morning and, and do an <laughs> ice plunge and, you know, live on air and um, all that stuff. He wakes up at a very reasonable 7 a.m., um, and actually has time to have dinner with his wife every day and then gets eight hours of sleep. So I was really pleased by that. Really good, yeah. <laughs> really pleased by that. I don't know, do, are you a fan of CEO profiles, Alessandro? I, I am. I, I think the, I, I think he was charmingly boring. Uh, I think <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's perfect. That's perfectly what you need. And um, not, none of the hype. I mean, just very mm. common sense, everything, yeah. you know. You have to wake up, you go to exercise, you speak to your people, you need to to send emails, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems, you know, yeah. you know there was, was that CEO that slaughtered his own meat, that slaughters his own meat, you know, that type of thing. You know, <laughs> yeah. that, he gets I mean, 45 minutes of sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, and it just to try to create this vision that they are superhuman mm. or different than everybody else. And this guy says, you know what, I'm not. I'm like, mm. like you. The only thing is I've done a really good job and I'm really yeah. good at what I do. I yeah, think, so I I'm think, very the, yeah, I agree with you. I think kind of the, the best CEOs are, the most reasonable, the ones that have companies that last for over that. 10 years, you know. Yes. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> and it's funny you were saying that you're thinking of somebody that didn't have a very good 2022. I, I guess he did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> I mean the, uh, you know, the valuation he has now, had, had he gone with the Visa acquisition, Visa eventually went and bought Tink, right, mm-hmm. uh, in Denmark. So, um, so they... Um, they did well. I mean, it's, he's sitting on a much, much bigger company than ever would have been able to do to be if uh, had been incorporated to be so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What What are your views, Michael? I think all CEOs that can get up at seven a.m. and have <laughs> uh, and have dinner with their wife are are pro uh, pro in our book. Are, yeah. yeah, pro in our book. So. Excellent. All right. So we're moving on to, I do apologize. I don't want to get sued. My favorite UK company. Uh, So this is a story in the UK. Revolut attracts UK watchdog scrutiny over red flag accounts. We all know that Revolut is now missing its much coveted UK banking license. So the story in the FT says the fintech allegedly let funds flow from accounts restricted by the national 
Crime Agency. Um, so they, of course, uh, deny this. Um, uh, Revolut is in talks with the UK financial regulator about failures that allegedly allowed money to be released from accounts flagged by the National Crime Agency as suspicious. Um, the FCA, which oversees Revolut's payments business, is engaging with the fintech with support of the NCA over the alleged failures to, that occurred between July and August of this year, according to two people familiar with the situation, reports the FT. As much as $1.7 million was released from the flagged accounts, Revolut notified the FCA of the latest problem in recent weeks, but claims only half a million was released. One of the people said Revolut declines to comment, as did the NCA and the FCA to the FT. So this is yet another uh, issue going on at Revolut, which the UK desperately wants to remain a unicorn. I know, I know. I should, I should really just stop talking <laughs> because I don't want the lawyers to come after me. What do you, what are your views, Alessandra? Okay, lawyers come after me then. Is that what you want? <laughs> yeah. um, um, look, I think they they had 1.7 million in segregated accounts. These accounts were opened up, and half a million left. Okay, now. Uh, accounts having 1.7 million deposits in them are very unusual. So they're very big and they're usually looked on by individuals very carefully. So putting a block on that account should have been something quite straightforward. Mm. The fact that 500,000 pounds left on an account, on, on, on account of that size, uh, of that kind, you know, the average balance is through 430 pounds. Yeah. Okay. So any 500,000 pounds release is, is not very good. So that means that their processes are possibly not up to, up, to, up to what they should be. And that could be potentially be linked to the fact that they're not getting their license from mm -hmm. the FCA. And also linked to the fact that even the Lithuanian authority is actually constantly looking at them and uh, verifying that they are they're not 100% happy, let's put it this way. Do you, uh, think, but there's, it's, do you yeah. think they'll ever get a UK license? What do you think? I don't think so. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think if they get the UK license, that means that their act is, they've gotten their act together and mm -hmm. they're going to be much more reliable. So I hope they do mm -hmm. uh, because we we need competition in the sector. I mean, the, the UK market is very top top heavy, et cetera, et cetera. So more, a player like them with their dynamic capabilities would be interesting. If they get a banking license, they'll be able to lend. That means that they will potentially become profitable. Um, I hope we don't know if they're profitable this year too. Last year they were profitable. Let's see what happens this year. Um, you know, it, it, it will be good to have a player that is regulated, that is that that is trustworthy, that I can put more than four hundred thirty pounds of my money in there and feel comfortable with it. Mm. Um, like everybody, I do have a. Oh, sure, I should be saying this. Look, <laughs> 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 my account. Um, <laughs> But they're, they're fun. I mean, the user experience is fantastic, but you know, that, but that also means that there's a focus on understanding the customer need, but not understanding the regulator's need. And the job of the regulator is to protect the customer. So the stuff is not arbitrary. It's there to protect us, right? See, I think it'll take a management change for, them to, for, for things to change at Revolut and for them to get their license. There, there is always this thing about uh, when you become reach a certain scale, the CEO should move on to the side. And I think a great example of this is Zopa with Jazz Andrews um, mm -hmm. uh, moving on and having a CEO from Silicon, I think it was a Steve person, I think, um, to, to run it. I think that's that's understandable. Every bank has done it in history. 
you rarely have the founder remaining forever. Why is that? It's because you need people who are looking at um, the nitty gritty. You know, as as the banks, as these organizations become bigger, you need somebody to understand mm. all the different threads that through, go throughout and is able to pull them together. So the charismatic CEO is not the right person to to run a global giant bank. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's. Uh... Yeah, there was another just a uh, you know another charismatic CEO is now. Uh... Uh, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is preparing for the fight of his life in the U.S., which there was another article in the FT, which is a companion to it, I think, or it might have been in the New York Times, saying that the crypto world is watching this um, and wanting him to go down. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so another, I don't know, any, any views, Michael, on, on these two these two things? Um, just on the Sam Bankman-Fried, I just mm. noticed that when I read about that his mum and dad seemed to be quite heavily involved and that his dad... Uh, seem to be a tax uh, specialist <laughs> which just just seemed just really really um interesting there's no excuse then <laughs> yeah there's no excuse and some of the um i think some of the correspondence between them i mean it's interesting i think what will come mm. up from the trial which is always interesting in these things i think the same thing came out with um the, the theranos trial whether this was incompetence or deliberate you know whether mm. this was he knew exactly what he was doing with buying real estate, mm. allegedly with client funds, um, we should say. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see what what comes out, and um, interesting to see their um, you know their their jury selection as well. Yes. <laughs> Do you know what crypto is? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Okay, so we've got. Um, oh, anyway, did you have any views, Alessandro? I didn't go to you. Any, oh, any comments? I, absolutely. <laughs> I think I think this is. I I, I love this whole story. Uh, I think because because crypto, first of all. Um, some kind of a cryptocurrency is the currency of the future. Is it going to be a CBDC, a stablecoin, etc.? Cryptos are are an, an investable asset that should be tried as such. The reason why this guy screwed up in the way he has is two things: um, incompetence and ignorance, but also lack of supervision. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they they went to uh, was it Bermuda, right? Yeah. They were based. No, Bahamas. Yeah. Bahamas. Bahamas. One of the two was yeah. a B. Yeah. yeah, it was Bahamas. <laughs> One of B. Um, and, and the regulators there, yes, I'm not this disputing any of their professionalism but when they saw a gigantic player like this guy come in with all the all the hype that was behind them set up they maybe they did not supervise him as much as they should have or they assumed that See? they were going to behave <laughs> sorry yeah, yeah. everybody yeah <laughs> people get you know it's like this money like there was uh, michael lewis's book is coming out about him very soon so he's all over the airwaves and he wrote about i mean i think it's strange that he was there during you know the rise and the fall and uh, didn't seem to know what was going on during the rise portion of his his one on ones with him, but he said, you know, in in meetings, people only cared that he was worth twenty two billion, mm. which I know that's I know money's a draw, but it's kind of like didn't anyone say, you know, should a twenty eight year old be in charge of twenty two billion, <laughs> or mm. yeah. you know, mm. could this be true about other companies that we've spoken about today? Um, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so um, I think there's a bit of that. There's a bit of this all about oh, these guys have really tapped into this new thing. It's just amazing. I don't mm -hmm. really understand what the crypto is, but he understands it and he's doing it. But then yeah. he, he was funneling money from from segregated accounts into his own accounts. He was they were just giving uh, arbitrary loans to his employees. He was cohabitating with various of his directors and so on and so forth. Um, all of this makes you think, okay, maybe it's not as as well run as one would imagine. And um, I think the regulators should have stepped up. Um, but I think all, all around the globe, the regulators should really wake up and see that crypto is a, is a good thing. 
what if you regulate it if you don't regulate it it becomes this thing that everybody's either thinking it's it's a good scam let's use it or they think they're afraid of it and they're not going to touch it uh whilst it could be a really really good thing it doesn't mm. run well so i think regulators are really you know this is actually a better story about regulators than yeah than uh incompetence I'm, um i'm still crooks. waiting i'm still waiting for the time when crypto is an okay thing i'm still i'm waiting for that i'm not i'm not debating that it might not happen but it's well mm. give it a month i think the <laughs> euro, euro is going to come out no? a few yeah. weeks time so We'll okay. see. Cool. All right. Our final story here. Now, it's very interesting. Um, you know, there's often a thing when you read the, the mainstream press about when your when your hometown or your office makes makes the, the national paper. But I thought it was funny today that the and today's Tuesday um, that the uh, the difficulty in finding a meeting room in the FT building has made a story in the FT. <laughs> <laughs> so in this story about um, the modern office needs a reboot. So it's about hybrid working and working from home. But the uh, the author in the FT spends most of the time talking about how difficult it is to find a meeting room. I think there's going to be a secondary market that's going to open up for people, <laughs> you know, blocking off meeting rooms and selling them um, when, when they needed, I managed to get one later on today. I was very proud of myself. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you will soon learn this. You, you, there's yes. a, there's a technique to finding a meeting room. After, yeah, do early, early. <laughs> we also have these like Doctor Who pods in the office that that like. people seem to like camp out in and never leave, so they're never available. So, Alison, are you are you're a you're a, a lone wolf, aren't you? This this uh, office environment is is no longer your everyday experience, is it? We have several partners, but we decided not to have a fixed office. So we have a, we're a member of this club that we meet, and then uh, we work from home. Uh, and also that allows half of my partners not to live in the UK. So that's another good thing. Um, no, I think I think this, this idea of the modern office has not been cracked yet. So I, I used to work for a Silicon Valley company in the early noughties, and they had abolished all desks, so nobody had a fixed desk. Um, but the EVPs had this meeting room that was always available for them only. It was booked entirely for them next to their desk. So it was empty all the time. Only when they wanted to use it, just walk in. So there's also a bit of hierarchy going on here mm -hmm. and some of these things. I'm not sure. I don't know if the FD is the same, but if one of your senior guys go once a room, do they get it? Off, off the record, that uh, happens, yes. <laughs> so, 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 so I think that is, but the thing is the office has to be redesigned. I think mm -hmm. the COVID accelerated the fact that the, the, the way offices are designed today is not, not fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. um, we're still kind of in transition, I think. We still haven't mm -hmm. found the real way of doing this because working from home doesn't work for, for young employees, the people, new people you hire because they thrive on learning from you know, getting exposure to more senior people. Um, how are we going to resolve that with the fact that senior people want to work from home because they have childcare and it's, mm -hmm. uh, the commute is cheaper from your bedroom to your desk? Mm -hmm. so. It'll be interesting to see how the office does um, does uh, does uh, evolve over the next few years. I mean, it's still every Friday is is basically empty here almost yes. in, in the city and in most places. But we'll see how it's going. Okay, so that's that's about it for the Banker Made Week. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining. Thank I, you so I much, welcome Brian. you on future episodes. And Alessandro, as always, thank you very much uh, for joining us for the Banker Made Week. A big pleasure, Liz. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.